Welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy Bar Chat Podcast. This is your host, Tristan Stevenson. Today, I'm speaking with Joanne McKercher. Joe is the gins and malts archivist and historian at the Diageo Archives in Scotland. That being the place where Diageo store all the old ledgers, advertising excerpts, and brand assets going back 150 years. We discuss Joe's background as a historian, what the day-to-day role of an archivist looks like, how the archives are informing innovation within Diageo, how acquisitions are made, the types of materials held in the archives, some of Joe's favorite items, and how the archives can serve bars and bartenders. We also talk a bit about the reopening of the legendary Brora and Port Ellen distilleries. This is a really good episode, one of my favorites. Joe is a legend, and I hope you enjoy it. Okay, I'm here with Joe McKercher. Hey, Joe, how you doing? Hi, Tristan. I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Where am I speaking to you from today? You're, you're at home, I presumably. I, yes, I am at home, as I have been since March. Um, so, yeah, I, um, I'm in Clackmannanshire, which is a tiny little county just outside Stirling. So right at the foot of the Oakle Hills, my view is very nice today. Sounds very picturesque. Is the weather any good? Because normally in, like in Scotland this time of year, it can be a little bit... Well, it's not raining, so that's good. Oh. Um, that is definitely yeah, a plus. It's, it's, yeah, no, it's cold. So we're, I think we're expecting snow this weekend. I'm really looking forward to getting into this because um, we've known each other for a while and I've visited the archive a couple of times and I know that there's a treasure trove of stuff there and you've got a treasure trove of information to relay to us and to the listeners as well. But before we get into that, I want to learn a little bit more about you. How does one go about becoming an archivist? What was your sort of route here? And did, was it planned? Did you always want to be someone who organises old things uh, and catalogues them? <laughs> no, <laughs> completely not planned. Um, so I'm a massive believer in if you do what you love, you'll end up doing a job that you love. So my um, passion throughout school was always history. And it was something that I shared with my granddad, who was a massive history fan as well. So when he was still here, we would go and visit places together. And it's just a really lovely thing for us to have to share. And then I chose to study history at university, which I did at Aberdeen. And then when I was getting to the point of graduating, it was kind of like, right, so what do I do with this now? I don't want to teach. So I, um, my uh, college professor actually suggested that I try um, working in an archive. So I went to work at the National Archives of Scotland, um, which is located in Edinburgh on Princess Street. And it was the most amazing place, to be honest, because really that is where all of Scotland's history is stored. And if you can think that you're standing in a building holding the Declaration of Our Growth um, in your hands. It's just something really special about connecting with that document and the people that would have um, you know, written on that, that are these now huge figures in history that we've come to learn so much about. And that insight into the past just really fascinated me. So I got the job at Diageo straight from graduating. So I've been with Diageo now for 15 years um, working in the archives there. Um, but it's quite nice because my dad worked in the drinks industry for 25 years. Um, my granddad actually worked on the site that I now work at as well. So um, there's some really nice family connections to the drink industry. And I think it definitely is something that kind of gets into your blood and into your family. And so it's been really nice to continue that connection, but doing it through what I love about it, which is the history of the industry and how we can make that 
relevant to everybody today. So I love it. How how has um, sort of coming into the drinks industry in the sense that you have uh, as an archivist changed your drinking habits over the years? Have you kind of become more discerning about the way you mix drinks or the products that you use? Do, do you feel a pretty strong brand loyalty now that you've been subjected to all these reams of historical information about them? Yeah, definitely. And like my husband despairs. He hates going anywhere with me now. Like if we go out for a drink, he's like, oh, God. Yeah, my wife's like that with me as well about things as well. (laughs) When I go into a bar, she she purposely finds the seat that's facing the bar so that I can't look at it. Otherwise, I'll be distracted by what's going on. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, yeah, I suppose I'm definitely more aware of what I drink and how it's made i think so definitely pay a bit more attention do love a nice a nice cocktail in a nice glass like to sit at the bar um and have a chat with the bartenders because i just think that's how you learn that's actually one of the biggest things i love about my job is that because um the archive is global and we get to do things like the privilege of things like going to world class which is probably where i've met you the last few times tristan around the world is that you then get to really understand how people are drinking things around the world. And I love that. Like, I think it gives you a real insight into their culture and and how things are changing and gives you some amazing ideas to bring back as well. So like Mexico City just blew my mind when we were going out to trade there and talking to bartenders and understanding like how they drank their their tankery or, you know, what they were doing with whiskey. And I just like that is a real privilege, to be honest. And I love Mm. that part of my job. Yeah, I mean, you are in a privileged position in that sense, because you get to contextualize the brand from its origins, like 200 years ago, or whatever. Uh, that seems to be when most of them started. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right through to present day in a market that didn't exist at the time with drinks that didn't exist at the time, that full sort of um, process of evolution on, on these products that I guess, you know, without fully understanding the origin stories, it's difficult for everyone else to grasp. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as soon as you can say to somebody, uh, like, take Mexico, for example, you know, like when we were going there, I was able to say to people, actually, did you know that tankery was available in Mexico from the 1950s? And here's the the earliest advert that we've got of tankery being served in, in Mexico City. And then I think it just gives people that instant connection with the brand. So because you've got that history and heritage at your fingertips, it allows you to open it up to people in a way that makes it relevant to them. And that's actually a really big part of what we have to do at the archive is it's not just about knowing the history and knowing what we've got on the shelves. Yes, that's that's all fair and well, but it's okay. So now we've got that. What do we do with it? And, and why is this important? And how is it relevant either to the brand, to the consumer, to the bartender? Like, what is it telling them that they didn't already know? And is it opening up an insight that has previously not been realized before? And that's a really big part of what we have to do at the archive. Mm. Is that a sort of, you know, a normal job requirement for someone who works in an archive? Or does it tend usually to be more a case of cataloging and organizing? Because I, it doesn't make any sense to me to have an archive unless you're going to use it uh, and and you know showcase all the stuff that's in it. But if your 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 role, like you say, is is sometimes involves traveling around and delivering seminars, right? On on these things, that's um, that sort of seems to be going above and beyond what I would expect an archivist to normally do. Yeah, I think that 
fair, I think um, we're not stereotypical archivists, if you like. So I think there's almost two halves to the role that we have to do at Diageo. It's, yes, you have your core archivist part, which is what people would expect. So it's the getting the records in in the first place, it's accessioning, cataloging, making sure they're stored properly, um, and making sure then that you can access them, you know, in five, 10, 50, 100 years time. But then the other part of what we have to do at Diageo is then that element of, okay, so how do we make this useful to the business? Because you're a commercial archive, you're not there predominantly for historical use. You're, you are there to help Diageo, you know, so there has to be that commercial lens on everything that you do. So it's actually very difficult to find archivists that can work in that environment because the skill sets is really tricky um but the commercial part is a bit that i love it's working with marketing it's working with innovation you know it's understanding that so um i work on gins and malts so that's predominantly where my focus goes so for things like um tankery it's understanding what we have in Charles Tankery's recipe books, but then also understanding, okay, so what does Tankery, the brand, need from me? What do the bartenders want to see in their gin? And what have we got in the recipe books that can fit that or can fill that gap? Um, and then take that to people to say, right, how do we work with the distillers? How do we work with marketing teams to bring this to life? And I think that skill is a really difficult one because you do have to almost be a marketer as well as an archivist. Mm. So how does it work with innovation brands then, new stuff? Are they constantly coming to you saying, well, we're going to do a new expression of Tanqueray or a new malt? Can you tell us, has this been done before? Or if or we're looking for something new to do, we don't know what it is. What has been done before? So um, actually, Diageo uses the archive really well now. So any innovation workshop will have the relevant archivist in it. So I think this week I've been in four different innovation workshops for things that are going on, both malts and gins. And then because you're inputting right at that early, early stage, it means that you're not going to get a project to a point where we then have to go in and say, you can't do that, or that doesn't make sense, or, you know, and that has happened in the past. So what, can you give me an example of where that might occur, where you'd have to say, ah, guys, actually, this isn't going to work because of X? Yeah, so they'll come up with ideas like, um, oh, we know that so-and-so drank this, so let's do, uh, you know, like, I don't know, Sinatra, whatever. But then you have to turn around and go, actually, no, that wasn't this brand, that was another brand, you've got the two confused. <laughs> or, um, you know, they've Googled something and they think it sounds amazing and then you're kind of like, yeah, no, we can't, we can't really do that. So it's like, it's sort of historical fact-checking, you know, in a sense, to ensure they're not kind of contradicting or, or, or kind of creating a false piece of history that as a narrative for a brand. Massive. Like that is a huge part of what we have to do is just sense check. So anything that has historical context in it, so whether it's packed copy, marketing communication, um, advertising, anything like that will have to come to us for a sense check. So we work really closely with our intellectual property lawyers to make sure that that's all okay and that we're not seeing anything that we can't corroborate um so yeah that's, that's a, a quite a tricky part sometimes because there will be times where you have to say no sorry we can't we can't claim that um uh, so they've 
kind of learned that bringing us in earlier is is better. So, but yeah, Diageo. I mean, to be fair, those those examples are few and far between. Diageo is very good now at involving us right from the beginning, and it definitely works. And it's great for me with innovation to be able to see products on shelf that I know wouldn't be there if we didn't have an archive. That's a huge like sense of pride to have in those in those products. Yeah. So how has the archive evolved over the years since you've been there? Because it sounds like it perhaps you weren't always involved in that innovation stage and it was more a kind of classic archivist role beforehand. So what 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 are the changes been while you've been there? Yeah, so that's definitely the case. So if I think back to me 15 years ago, you were the place that people would come to if they wanted an old image of something or if they just wanted like a basic, can you send me the history of Port Ellen Distillery, um, you know, that sort of really basic information. And I would have said then I would have spent at least 50 percent of my time on the sort of core archivist work that we mentioned earlier. So that accessioning, cataloguing, etc. Now that has definitely flipped. And I would say I spend none of my time on that part. <laughs> We've had to hire um, more people in that specifically are there to catalogue and to accession and to gather that information. And my full job now is about leveraging the collections for the business and for our key external stakeholders. So it has massively changed. But then the projects that they're working on now are so different too. So for me, um, yes, innovation is a big part of that. But then you've also got things like Destination Scotland. So the reopening of our Four Corner Distilleries, the Johnny Walker Princess Street experience in Edinburgh, and also the, the reawakening of Brora and Port Ellen. Like they have been huge projects for me. What have you been doing around Brora and Port Ellen? I'm interested in that. So because obviously that is it's big news in the whiskey world. Everyone's very excited about it. So give us a little bit of insight into what works required from the archive to to contribute towards that project, all those projects. Yeah, so uh, Brora Distillery um, is situated really far north, actually. It's our most northerly distillery, so about five hours north of where I, I am now in Stirling. Uh, so it's on the Caithness Coast. Uh, it was established in 1819, and it's a beautiful, beautiful old distillery. Um very famous now for making sort of three different styles of Brora whiskey. So it, it was originally built to use the surplus grain from the farmlands surrounding it, as a lot of distilleries were. But by the sort of turn of the 1900s, it became quite popular. So basically, they had to make the decision not to sell it to anybody but private clients. So um, this demand for it was so big, and there was only two stills at Brora. So it's very, very small. And then in the 1960s, this is where it starts to get confusing, um, they couldn't make the demand for Brora out of the still house that they had. So they built a second distillery about 200 metres up the hill, which is now known as Klein Leash. So they ran together for a year um, under the same name. They were known as Brora, uh, sorry, Klein Leash A and Klein Leash B. So Brora Distillery was originally called Kleinleash. It's very confusing. Mm. They ran uh, Kleinleash A, Kleinleash B. Then they realised that they couldn't have two distilleries with the same name. So they had they decided to rename the original distillery Brora. Why they didn't just keep that one Kleinleash, I will never understand. Yeah, I always wondered that as well. <laughs> and named the new one Kleinleash. 
Um, and then Brora sadly closed in 1983 because it got to the point where there was, well, this is when we got into that sort of whiskey walk period where there was just so much whiskey and not enough demand for it. It's kind of mad to think that that was the situation. And it's so smoky, then, right? Which was also out of fashion at the time. Yeah, Brora is a really interesting one. I can like totally geek out on that because the... Um, the, the peating level changed over the years at Brora to make up for demand. Okay. So it was originally one thing, then they upped the peating level when Kalila wasn't giving us what we needed for the blends. So then they upped it at Brora and then dropped it back down again towards like 81, 82, 83 um, to a more sort of Highland style. So that's why you'll see this odd kind of change in Brora over the years. Um, it's really interesting, actually, but I suppose you've got to remember Distilleries like Brora were producing predominantly for blending purposes. So mm. if Kalila wasn't giving the blenders what they needed, they had to substitute it from somewhere else. So Brora must have been a distillery that for them was quite easy to flex. So yeah. the up levels there. You've got to think about them like flavor houses, really, haven't you? And they're, you yeah. know, they're making flavors for a recipe. Um, and the recipe is, is paramount. That's the most important thing. You've got to keep that the same. Um, yeah. And so the distilleries, the flavor houses need to adapt in order to, to, to produce the product that's needed for the blends. Yeah. And then um, Cortellan is on Isla. And it was established in 1824. I think I'm getting that right. Um, by a man named John Ramsey. Well, he was really the sort of distiller that became most famously associated with Portellan Distillery over the years. And again, um, I mean, it's got the most gorgeous location in Portellan, just down from Lagavulin. Um, but as a distillery over the years, again, probably quite a tricky one to run. So um, when the decision came in 83 that, another, like, that they had to close, Portellan was another one that, that suffered then, so it mm. was closed. The distilleries were left in quite different states. So, I mean, you'll have been to Port Ellen. There's no distillery the there. Yeah. There's nothing there. So, and um, Brora was the complete opposite because it was like somebody just walked out and closed the, the doors and never went back in again. Mm. So when you went back to Brora, it was like stepping back in time. It was insane. Like, I've never experienced that at a distillery before. So both projects have required a lot of digging into records well first of all the problem was we didn't have many at the archive so that was problem number one i was like right well they must be somewhere so i need to go hunting for them so i went up to brora managed to find some plans in a bin liner in the loft which included some charles doig plans from like 1896 bless them they just must have gone up there and forgotten about quite valuable documents really yeah, I was like, I think I'm just going to take these back down the road with me because we might need these. <laughs> so, um, so did a bit of a canvassing of both the distilleries and um, I did a lot of external research as well. So went to the Mitchell Library at Glasgow to look at the sort of like the Kildare State papers that are there. Um, interviewed a lot of people, so old employees that are still with us just to try and get their memories of what it was like to work at these places. and. Um, paid huge attention to detail at both distilleries around how they even ran. So working with like the likes of Jim Beveridge, Stuart Bowman, who will be the distillery manager at Brora, just to really understand how the distilleries even ticked because we had no clue. And especially at Brora, the fermentation times were giving the guys like quite a headache. So I always remember Stuart seeing this ledger, which to me looked like 
a page of numbers like didn't mean anything to me but for Stuart he just went oh I get it I know why they were doing that now so it was a real amazing project to work on with all these so intelligent and incredibly knowledgeable people across the Agio just to unpick what happened at Brora and what happened at Port Ellen and really so that we could make sure that we do these distilleries justice when we bring them back online because this is a huge responsibility you know like mm. you say it's big news in the whiskey industry that we were reopening these distilleries and we've got to get it right so it's yeah. quite a lot of pressure well we should say that i mean that you know you can still buy bottles from Brewer and port ellen at incredibly high prices i mean they often come out in the diageo special releases every single year typically you know well over a thousand pounds a bottle um like brewer has gone above thousand these days and Port Ellen's been above a thousand for some time. Um, and so to relaunch them and of course start producing new make spirit again and putting it in cask with a view to releasing whatever it is, 10, 15 years into the future is a really big deal. So you see, when you're doing all this research and inquiry, you're really looking to understand how the distillery operated so that you can as closely approximate production in the new distillery as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, like the the engineers were looking at it even down to like, okay, so we can see on this plan, this is where an electrical cable ran in. Like the attention to detail that they've paid, the team that have worked on it are phenomenal. Like the likes of, there's a girl called Donna Anderson that works up in Elgin and she basically designs the distilleries so that they create the flavor profile that we need them to. And she is an absolute legend in Diageo. And what she can do is just unbelievably phenomenal. Like every time I speak to her, I'm like, you're just like up here in terms of like your knowledge of the whiskey industry. So to be working with people like her and Jim and Stuart and Georgie over on Isla as well for Port Ellen, honestly, it's been a real privilege. And we're all just like so excited as well to be part of the team that are bringing these back. Because this, like, this is a dream. Imagine being the historian working on the the project to bring back Brora and Port Ellen. This hasn't really been done before, has it? I mean, distilleries have been mothballed and reopened, but especially with Port Ellen to have to rebuild it from scratch to as faithful a, as possible a recreation um i i can't think i mean i can't think of any scotch whiskey distillery or really any historical distillery in the world where that this has been attempted before no honestly neither can i and i think it's um it's honestly down to the credit of diageo in recognizing the importance of maintaining their heritage at all that we've even got the records that allow us to do this because honestly if you did not have an archive or a, a team like I do to help us unpick this and do the due diligence and, and take the time to do the research, then yeah, you can't do it because especially with distilleries, if they didn't have somewhere to send their records, they would have just got skipped, you know, mm. or and we know that distilleries are really prone to flooding or fire damage. Um, you know, like every single one of them is probably flooded or caught fire at some point. So um, it really is a, a, a unique thing to Diageo to be mm. able to do this and, and pay this much attention, but also give us the time to do that as well, to make sure that what we're doing is actually what we should be doing. Um, it's not been a rushed job 
for sure. <laughs> like, yeah. like, sometimes I would have quite liked a little bit longer. But um, yeah, it's yeah, it's been, and most of all, it's been fun. And I can't wait to get back up there and see what happens. Broda will be opening first. So. Wait, so when is it due to come online? Do you know? Next year, early next year. So everything's obviously so that's early, early 2021. Yes. Yeah, yeah. cool. Um, that's exciting. Of course, it'll be a little while before we get to taste anything, but I'll look forward to coming and visiting. Um, I mean, Klein Leash is my favourite malt distillery. Uh, not 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 yeah. not because of the distillery itself, because that's reasonably unexceptional. But it's my favourite malt. Uh, it's I think it's astonishingly good whiskey, and um, I've I've visited only once and didn't get to see any of the old brewer stuff. Um, I think we went in a warehouse, but not not the not the old distillery. Um, I remember there was work being done on the distillery actually when I went there. This was about five years ago. They were talking about extending the still house or, or making a mirror image of the still house. And I think in the end it got shelved probably because they were doing this Brora uh, reincarnation. Yeah, I, um, they have they have upgraded the um, the still house, not the still house, sorry, but like the mash tons and things okay. like that. A bit. But the big thing that we're doing there is we're really heavily investing in the visitor experience. So yeah. the next time that you come that has been completely transformed. I mean, the yeah. plans for the are gorgeous and they're putting in a beautiful bar that will look right out down to the sea. Um, oh, fantastic. Yeah, because yeah, it's an so amazing setting as well. Up. Like you say, up there oh. on, the, on the north. It's uh, it's wonderful, that that part of... because Partly because there's so few people. I mean, there's like a filter there in, uh, you know, heading up past Inverness. It's like you're a long way from sort of normal civilization the further you go up there, and uh, it just gets more and more remote, more and more quiet, wild, um, and you're never far from the sea either, are you? No, and honestly, it it is very, it's like a a pilgrimage almost to get there because, like, I worked on malts for years, and I didn't manage to ever get to Cleanly Shore Brewer until this project was announced, and then I was kind of thinking, oh, I really need to go because. I haven't physically experienced this distillery. And as you know, I think some people will say to you, oh, all distilleries are the same. And that is absolutely not the case. Mm. As soon as you go and visit a distillery, you instantly get uh, a feeling for what makes this place different and special. And then you can speak to the folk that work there. And then that opens it up even more, you know, and you only can get that if you can if you are lucky enough to be able to go and it is a privilege to be able to go but yeah god Klein leash is a trick man like yeah it is but, um you're you're right to your point it's funny because distilleries are you know for for someone who's who's uh uninterested in spirits and whiskey they are factories uh you know they are they're, they're producing a product um from from raw materials um, but they, at least to me, seem to be unique in the sense that they have a personality and a character to them. And the people who work there have, you know, a certain uh, influence over the product that they produce, both now and historically. The culture that surrounds the distillery has an influence. Even the, the sort of land around the distillery and what grew there and the terroir and so on. Um, and that does make each one totally unique. I've done hundreds of distilleries and every single one I go to, uh, I find something there that is interesting in, in one re for one reason or another, some fascinating element to the process or the way in which it's been arranged, the configuration, 
the the random piece of equipment they've got that you've never seen in another distillery uh it's it really is interesting untangling them and and trying to understand what makes them tick oh so true and it's i I always try and talk to the operators as i go around as well which i'm sure drives them nuts Mm. but like they are the guys or women that know that place inside Mm. out like better than anybody and i really remember being at dalwini must be like three years ago now and we were just getting shown around Dalwini and um, I was with some people that hadn't been there before. And this the operator had said to me, he was like, oh, I need to go. I was like, what's wrong? He goes, ah, something doesn't sound right. We were in the still house. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, that still's not running right. doesn't sound right. So they're so tuned in to their distillery and how it operates that even just by sound or sometimes smell, mm. they can tell if it's off. And like that just totally blew my mind I was yeah. like oh my gosh you guys know this place inside and out and it's really like it is a craft you know yeah. like to be able to do that and then you know quite often they'll say like oh some like if something goes wrong I remember at Talisker something goes wrong and they're, they don't know how to fix it they just phone Norman who's like 80 lives up the road and like they'll say to him like something's not working right it's like oh try this that's always happened and then they can help them like and I love that about it like that's what makes these places so yeah. special and unique and yeah it was fab i love going around with distilleries i miss that actually yeah i miss it too it's, this is definitely the longest i've been without visiting a distillery since i was probably about 18. <laughs> but uh again it's to your point um you're saying about how electrical cables being run in the new um port ellen or, or brora um and i i found over the years especially in scotland actually that distillers have a certain superstitious nature about them. And I think a lot of people probably would have heard stories about, you know, wanting to leave cobwebs where they are um, because, you know, that in some way affects the running of the still and, you know, the spirit becomes more sulfurous if you, if you clean it too much and all these sort of superstitious things. And um, that's wonderful if you can kind of, well, if you, go, if you take that attention to detail to recreation, recreating the distillery, even so far as where the electrical cables are running, then I think that's playing in nicely to these these old stories of superstition and taking the process of distillation away from this idea that it's just a sort of mechanical production process and giving it the respect it deserves as a craft. Because like yeah. you say, it involves all the senses, the smell, the touch, the heat, the sound, everything plays into producing these spirits. And really... You've got, you've got, you know, you've got archive information, but you've also got people who have been working in these places for a couple of generations, and I've met loads of them as well. You know, yeah. you you you're walking around with the, uh, you're going to tour around with the 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 PR or the marketing person or the salesperson, and then you encounter some old guy or woman, and they're like, oh yeah, this is Craig. You know, he's been here for fifty years. And this person is just tuned in to the operation of things. They know every bump, every step, every bit of rust, every scratch, every surface. Like you say, the sounds, the tastes, the smell, it, it's all there. And that's a sort of serious resource of information to the runnings of these places that you can't, you can't document that into a manual because it's personal. Oh, and they've got all the best stories. Yeah. Those guys have all the best stories. So we have tried to capture those. So we've done a massive oral history project. Um, So we've filmed a lot. I think we've done now over 80 interviews. Oh, wow. And it is everybody from the coppersmiths, my 
gosh, like the language from our conference mix, but honestly, the stories that they have got are hilarious, absolutely hilarious. Coppersmith, Coopers, um, retired distillery workers, current distillery workers, because you're right, like I, especially working on malts, I noticed that there's a real like generational gap in the collections. And I was like, we need to fix this because we're at danger of losing this huge amount of information. And the best way for us to do that was through the oral history interviews. So we worked with them. Um, Scottish Oral History Centre and they, they conducted everything and we filmed them all as well um, and they are actually available at the University of Strathclyde in the archive there um, if anybody wants to access them. But can the, you do that online or do you have to go there? Um, you can I think you'll be able to access the transcripts online but you would probably need to physically go to view the films if you wanted to watch the, the footage um, but the stories that we got from the guys and, and women were just amazing. Like, I can't, like, honestly, you could talk, you could do a whole podcast just on that mm. because they just gave us an insight into not just what it was like to live at a distillery, but what it was like to grow up at the distillery. Because quite often, like you say, the dads and the granddads and the uncles worked here. So it wasn't just somewhere that they now work. It was somewhere where they grew up. And they would go and visit their dad when he was on the night shift and they like hang out in the still house and they would play like games on each other and try and freak each other out. And best that's where you get the best um, drama stories as well. So what's it like when you turn up, so say you're going to Brora on a fact-finding mission. What, what's that like when you walk in and you go, right, they're like, they're, before you get there, like, oh, Joanne's coming from the archives. I don't know what she wants to see. Uh, you know, and then in you roll and you're like, right, show me everything you've got. And they're like, well, it's in the attic. Uh, you're welcome to have a look. There's a few bin bags up there. How, how does that process work? You liaise with the distillery manager? Or? Oh, so, so much about what I have to do is based on relationships. So I have to get to know the people that work at the distilleries really well because, and rightly so, their heritage is really important to them really important so if they do have ledgers or books on site you know they're they're though they're theirs and they take great pride in that and they like having them there and they like being able to show people when they come around that this is what they've got unfortunately sometimes they're just not in the best condition or if they're there i can't access the information that's in them then for other projects that i might be working on so yeah, when I first started, there was this kind of like, oh, it's Joe, hide everything so that she doesn't know it's here. She's not going to take it back with her. <laughs> um, but now I think that people can really understand the value that the archive brings and understand that the records will be kept in the, the appropriate conditions. And, you know, I can absolutely have replicas made if anybody wants something on site, then they're much more... Um, accommodating <laughs> pitch up and um yeah I'm not quite there just to take stuff away now and it's definitely a partnership but yeah so how does that work then if you what would be the justification for transferring an item to the archive um preservation normally so you you're not confident that it would necessarily get the care that it would get that it should it deserves or needs in the distillery well i think because so we're at the archive we keep everything at a relative temperature humidity they're all in acid-free boxes they're accessions so there really will be no deterioration of the records once they come to the archive now quite often if you've got a record on display at a distillery it could be say in the exciseman's cubby hole in a warehouse so it is as a place just generally quite damp quite 
cold and the, the records might have mold on them, things like that. So yeah, they can't always be preserved as well as we would want to do. Um, however, the alternative is then that we just make them a really good replica and that can go in place instead. Um, there will be certain occasions where if we're doing, for example, like a media event or something like that, that we'll take the originals from the archive to the site and um, that we can use them for that. But that is a kind of a rare occurrence, I'd say, because anytime you move anything out of the archive, there's a risk that something might happen to it. So it's, you know, it's important that we preserve it. But honestly, now everyone gets that. So they're very, they're very helpful and accommodating. And um, now I don't think the distilleries have a, well, if they do, they're not telling me if they've got stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's an underground archive in every distillery. It's just labeled, hide this from Joe. Yeah, um, probably. Like, let's be honest. Yeah, probably. <laughs> black market of it all. Um, so, we, I mean, you'd really only look to uh, take away the stuff that is deemed to be sort of really valuable, not valuable necessarily cash value, but, you know, valuable as, as a historical record. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't want to go up there and strip the sites of everything that they've got. But if I see something that I'm like, actually, that's a huge historical value or um, actually this is the kind of record that I am asked about all the time. And if it's here, I can't access it. So it would be helpful to have it down in the archive. Then, yeah, that's and, and then presumably with all because a lot of the distilleries are now they're, they're getting sort of fancier visiting visitor centers. Um it's sort of happening across Scotland, really. Um, presumably, you're giving stuff back to feature in these, or they, or they replicas mostly that are going in there. Actually, the experiences it varies depending on what it is. So, uh, for Johnny Walker Princess Street, we have built like um, an archive room in there. So they they have built a room with everything to do with like the appropriate level of of storage and security that we would require, and there will be original items there. Um, as part of the Johnny Walker Princess Street experience. At the distilleries, actually, the requirements not being quite as high because of the way that we're telling the story now. So there's there will be odd items here and there, depending on which distillery you go to. But actually, the experience in themselves didn't actually need it. So um, it's kind of hard to explain the transformation that these distilleries are going through in terms of their visitor experience but it's um it's like nothing i've seen before in whiskey mm. that's exciting so, yeah honestly like the next time you come up to Leash or glenkinchy um is now open yeah it, i saw that yeah well i was like the first time I walked around, I was like, oh, this is a way better than I could even have imagined it was going to be from having worked on the project since it started. You know, you kind of see these renders and you think, oh, OK, it'll kind of look like that. But it's exactly like that. It's amazing. Yeah, like the I was up there done. about a year ago or 18 months ago and it was all a big building site. Um, yeah, it's not very pretty at the time, but I've seen some pictures and it looks amazing. It was really cool, which is good because. You know, it's so close to Edinburgh. Um, I imagine it must be one of the more visited distilleries in in Diageo's portfolio. So it ought to it ought to look good. Yeah, and um, because of its location, it's so close to Edinburgh. But I think what's been really interesting is that actually the people that live around there haven't ever been before. So, like um, the people that live around about East Lothian or or that side of Edinburgh, 
a lot of them won't have actually gone to Glenkinshie. And now what we're finding is that the predominant visitors are local people who are oh, completely wow. falling in love with it again. And that's it's good. really, really nice to see because that's what the distilleries were. You know, they were like the centres of the, the communities and that's where people met. And I think it's really nice to see that come back. Have they kept that model distillery that used to be on the tour? Yes, they have. That's really cool. I, there's, and there's nothing like that in Scotland, in all of Scotland. No, it's super cool. And they've added to it. So they've got the original model, which I think was built for the Great Exhibition in 1924. I'm not sure if I'm getting my dates right there. but um, And it runs. It's an operating distillery model, so it can actually run. takes you through the whole distillation process, but it's stopped uh, um, after distillation. So they've now added on um um blending room and uh, sort of Johnny Walker kind oh, of cool. blender's room and cask warehouse and stuff like that, which they've recreated from the little Johnny Walker Bernard book, which all right. showed all the sketches from like Hill Street and Kilmarnock. So it's really, really cool. So it's still there. It's got um it's big pride of place as part of the tour actually. It's a so big it's thing, lovely. isn't it? It's like it's sort of like Massive. a series of interconnected, very large dolls houses. And, yeah. uh, and it runs you through the whole production process. Really, really cool because it can, it can be difficult when you're touring a distillery to understand how whiskey's made, even when it's being told to you, because there's just all these massive containers and, you know, big mash tons and, and washbacks and everything and pipes everywhere. So you're, for, you know, someone who, who's perhaps touring their first distillery or isn't that clued up on it, it can be a little bit overwhelming and difficult to understand. But when you put everything into a model like that, uh, it suddenly becomes quite easy to, to recognize the different steps of the process. Yeah, because you can see it all in front of you. Whereas if you walk around a distillery, you're going from room to room and you're trying to connect how, like, so when the spirit's going here, what's it doing in here? And then what happens when it goes through to there? So the model allows you to see it all in one place. And it's it's really cool. The attention to detail that they've got in it is is really smart. Yeah. So, um, But yeah, that was one thing when we were starting the project. We're like, you have to keep the, the model still. Because it's people go to Glen Kinchy just to see that. Like, yeah. it's famous in itself, just even within, like, sort of modelling world. So um, when you're sourcing the materials, uh, you're, you're getting it from existing the distilleries themselves, which which have their own records. But you must be buying bits and pieces from third parties or or seeking them out like some sort of treasure hunter. Um, <laughs> I mean, do you do like eBay just to buy things? Well, yeah, occasionally we do. So um, predominantly we'll get things... Like so, I suppose if you went back to when the archive started, it was started by Nick Morgan um, in 1990, and his job when he established it was actually just to go around all the distilleries, all the head offices of the companies, and pull everything together and bring it into one space. And so the collections that we started with were actually really quite big to begin with. So to put it into perspective for people that haven't been to the archive, um. It's the largest spirits archive in the world. And if we were to line everything up side by side, it takes up the same amount of space as 55 football pitches. So the collections themselves are huge, absolutely huge. And it will be anything from the distilleries that we've mentioned to Johnny Walker, Bells, Buchanan's, um, and then also our parent companies, so Diageo, Distillers Company Limited, Scotch Malt Distillers, you know, all those collections too. 
And then we also have a huge photograph and film collection, uh, advertising collection, and then packaging collection as well, which is what's on display in our liquid library. And the bottles in there date from about the 1880s, right the way through to currently what we're producing. So I think there's about over 5,000 bottles on display in there just now. Yes, we struggle to keep that up to date sometimes. So it's a constant battle to get things sent, even that Diageo are producing into the archives. So that's a big part of um, what my colleagues do actually, is just making sure that that process happens. But then the other side of that is gaps that we've got in our collection for whatever reason. So things haven't come from a market or they were just never sent or something's happened at a site or a distillery and stuff hasn't survived. And that is when we will start to look at purchasing from other places to see if we can fill those gaps in. So it doesn't happen a huge amount, but yeah, we will occasionally buy from auction. Um, people will find things in their house and they'll get in touch with us and ask mm. if we want to purchase them. That actually happens quite a lot. That must be exciting. Like new email comes through. Like my my grandfather died recently, and I found this. You're like waiting for the image to load, and you're like, "Come on, make it something juicy." Yeah. Oh, it was, yeah. So I have had the juiciest of juicy ones of those just two weeks ago. Needless to say, it just made my year. Oh, really? So I have just managed to get something for exactly that reason. Somebody found it when they were cleaning out their dad's cupboard. Gin, whiskey. Can you tell us that? Whiskey. Mmm. That's I, what you're getting. I, I know what you're like with secrets because I've pressed you on stuff before and gotten both of us in trouble, so I won't continue any further. <laughs> but uh, especially not on a podcast that's being broadcast all over the world. But um, that's exciting. Yeah, but like properly exciting. So yeah, so it does happen. But like nine times out of ten, you're kind of like, okay, that's a bottle of Gordon's from the 1990s. No yeah. <laughs> but you know, for that one time when it is something really rare or really special or that you've just never thought in your wildest dreams you'd ever be able to get then yeah that's good what does the sort of split of the archives look like in terms of materials is it sort of dominated by gin or whiskey malts johnny walker how does it sort of break down roughly i wish it was dominated by gin um although it is our oldest stuff so the oldest items that we have in the diageo archive are our gin items. Mm. So I, I want to get to drilling you on the oldest and rarest bits in a minute, actually. Okay, well, I'll save that for then. Um, so split of collections. Actually, our biggest collections are things like the Distillers Company Limited collections, um, like the parent companies. Mm. They, and they actually are a huge, huge source of information because that's where... Um, you've got all the committee decisions that were being made over the years. So that's kind of where we were finding all the information about Brora and Port Ellen because they were having to make them at like exact level. So they're our biggest. In terms of brands, Johnny Walker is our biggest brand collection. Um, and then after that, the brands are all kind of about the same. So, you know, they're fairly well represented. So we look after all the as you owned brands and the, the materials for all markets as well. So the only thing that you won't see with us is Guinness because that's held at the um, archive in St. James's Gate in Dublin. So we don't hold any beer. And we also don't collect for brands that we don't fully own. So mm. no Zappa, no Kettle One, etc. cetera. Um, if we buy a company, then the collection 
comes as part of the condition of sale. Um, and likewise, if we sell one, then the collection has to go too. So when we sold Bushmills, we had to package that up and send it back to the distillery. I think if we ever sell Tancre or Gordon's, then I have to go with it. I don't think I could quite hand that over to anybody else to look after. <laughs> so. Quite a lot of work involved in extracting it all out and sending, packaging it up in boxes and uh, getting 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 raw mail to come and pick it up and... <laughs> yeah honestly it was like that was huge and it's actually really sad because um you know you do get very attached to the collections that you work on and you know them inside out so to see it go it is it is actually really difficult um the distilleries are they're actually we've got a lot for the distilleries but they are a bit patchy depending on the distillery so Oban is our oldest distillery and I've got two boxes of information for Oban mm. like <laughs> so it's such a shame I don't know what happened they clearly didn't see any benefit in keeping anything for Oban historically so almost have just gone in the bin so uh, but we're changing that now and trying to build it back up but then some of the distilleries have got hundreds of boxes so um Obviously, a lot of the malt distilleries, especially, won't have done a lot of marketing over the years because that's a relatively new thing from their point of view. Whereas the likes of Johnny Walker or Tanqueray or Gordon's have been marketing heavily for over 100 years, right? So is that in some way reflective of the quantity of materials you've got of them? Yeah, 100%. Like, so it's, you've completely hit the nail on the head there the way that the brand collections work is very different to the way that the distillery collections work just because of the nature of the records that they produce so the brands have some beautiful vintage advertising going back to the 1800s malts we don't have any of that so like your earliest advertising really will date from like the launch of the classic malts range so mm. late 80s early 1990s and even then it's not in huge quantities there's not that much of it you will find occasional things where a distillery will pop up in a trade magazine, but they're not like beautiful vintage adverts. It's like, you know, the old print adverts where you'll maybe get like three sentences of, mm. buy poor Ellen, old malt, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's, and they're cool, but they're not the beautiful things that you would say get for Johnny Walker or Buchanan's or brands like that. The distillery collections, and just in terms of the records that they create as well, they're very functional because it is just like your production ledgers from the distilleries so it takes a little bit more um digging to pull the stories out from those they're not quite as easy to gather the the beautiful like historical romantic nuggets that you would get from some of the older brand collections it's definitely more of a challenge for the distilleries but then at the same time the records can be quite emotive so um I don't know if you've seen actually on my Instagram, there was like this really cool Brora ledger and it had like all this graffiti on the inside that must have been the operators just like doodling <laughs> while they were working. That and needs to go on a label like, on a bottle or something. Yeah, it was just super cool. I was like, oh, that is awesome. So I like took a photograph of it. But then there's like the production ledger from 83 and it just stops. Like, you know, you've got that last mm. entry and then nothing and the, the rest of the book's empty. And so I think that is when you start to see, okay, these are telling us a story. It's just a bit harder to find out what that is yeah imagine being that operator who put that last entry in oh you should do a replica of that and then give it give it to the new distillery and get them to start filling in you know starting in whatever it is april 2021 i might even consider giving them the original to let them do that because oh. how it'd be like imagine restarting that book again 
it would be cool to just that first ink touching paper and writing in you know whatever the information is you got to got to include in a ledger distillery production oh. ledger yeah i know which is basically all just numbers that mean nothing to yeah me. but like it's um yeah so the the records are different but they're they're still really essential and key to us you've just got to look at them from a so when i work on the gins the way that i approach the records is very different to then if i'm working on the malts just because of the the records that we've got what's your favorite items then personal favorite pieces that are in the archive um Oh, my absolute, absolute favourite thing in the whole archive is a, a Gordon's item. It's a Gordon's cocktail chorus, and it looks like a record. It's from the 1930s. Oh, yeah, I remember you showing this to me, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, I love it, honestly. So uh, you spin the little wheel around on the inside, and then it has the name of the cocktail on the edge, and then this really, like, unpolitical comment about the cocktail <laughs> and then um in the notes it gives you the ingredients of it and on the back it's got this really funny like prose all about how the the, the social dilemmas of making a bad cocktail <laughs> like i love it and it's such an insight into the time for one the because culture, yeah yeah exactly like this is when people were wanting to throw cocktail parties at home but nobody knew how to do it because you know, even still today, there's that sort of like somebody wants me to make them a cocktail and I'm not quite sure how I'm going to do this. So Gordon's recognised that and we're like, OK, so how do we how do we help people? How do we make this fun? How do we because they're always, you know, they want to be at the centre of the party and them with people. It's all about like having fun with Gordon's. And that is my absolute favourite, favourite. Yeah, it's I remember uh, the Artesian Bar in London did a cocktail menu in the same style i don't think it had any basis in in the item you're describing but it's like a cardboard wheel with a cutout bits where you can spin it it there's yeah. sort of two wheels i guess aren't there two circles and you spin it and then it comes up with with different things and so what did you say what is it 1960s did you say the 1930s 30s oh wow so it's quite old yeah 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 definitely quite old um but yeah oh, i just honestly i just love it it's just fun like that is that's the best thing about it. <laughs> and also, I, my gosh, you'll know, those cocktails were so boozy. Yeah. It's just like, booze, booze, more booze, maybe an egg. They didn't mess about. They really didn't mess about. It was strong stuff. Um, all, all of those sort of drinks that came around in the first sort of third or even half, really, of the 20th century were strong alcoholic drinks. I mean, they tended to be spirit with, with vermouth or, or, or liqueur. Um, maybe some bitters and maybe some additional sugar or a bit of citrus and there you go yeah yeah, it's, yeah I love them They're, yeah. the cocktail books are great you know like even the little pocket sized cocktail books that you got like from the 1920s and 30s and 40s I just love flicking through them and seeing how people were drinking well the thing is I think because you can see all the advertising and get a sort of idea of what the mood was like with cocktails what sold uh you know what what who the target market was but to have a um sort of consumer item like that which is designed to accompany drinks mixing or 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 accompany drinking whiskey whatever it might be that gives you that further sort of like deep dive into the culture around cocktails and drinking at that time and it's difficult to get that because you know we have we have written articles and we have cocktail books we don't have items that were intended for 
you know, to be in someone's hand whilst they're drinking or to be used in the kitchen whilst they're preparing for their cocktail party. And I, I, I really like that stuff as well. Yeah, you can just get lost in it. I think it's great. So, and then I think we even found um, one of my colleagues, Alia, has been doing a lot of research um, in America to try and help us understand like how our brands have shown up in America. And um, she found that it must be the oldest Port Ellen advert that we've got from the eight, late 1800s. And even wow. in that, it's telling you to drink it in a hot toddy. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's the stair suggestion in the little like advertorial piece about it from the late 1800s. I'm like, this is amazing. Like, that is incredible. And instantly, I'm like, okay, so for the opening of Port Ellen, we have to do like a, a hot stir somehow for, for this because it's like, who would have thought? Well, that would work well with younger whiskey as well, I think. You don't want your whiskey too old if you're doing hot toddies. So, and yeah, I can imagine but that smoke, youthful whiskey, still vibrant, bit of lemon juice, some cinnamon, whatever, sugar, top it up with hot water. Preferably do the opening in the winter when it's freezing cold on Isla. But listen, there's Port Ellen. It'll be freezing cold in July. So <laughs> it's, that's, that's not a problem. So. <laughs> So what are the most like valuable things in the archive? And I mean, I, I guess it must be difficult to put cash values on this stuff because it's probably most of it's worth more to you than it is to anyone else. Um, but like there must be certain items in there where you're like, okay, the place is on fire. These are the top five things we need to grab and get out. Oh, we have that list. Yeah. <laughs> that, is, really? that is a, oh yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. We've got that for each of the collections. Like you're, top items that you know you'd need to get out so it's yeah the value thing is a really hard one and I think it's one that we get asked a lot about because especially when you walk into the liquid library and you're seeing some of those bottles on the shelf and if you know especially for malts like you know your secondary market value and you're sitting thinking oh wow okay that brewer I just sold for 50,000 pounds for one bottle so yes there are items like that that are worth a lot of money um, in today's markets um, but for a lot of our, our things that we have it's more about the fact that well for most cases they're the only ones that we know of in the world so the oldest Johnny Walker bottles that we have the oldest Tanqueray or Gordon's bottles that we have I don't know of any other ones it's the same with like the oldest Talisker bottles so if something was to happen to those they're gone and we can't replicate them at all so that makes them priceless to us mm. and it's the same with the records so um for example for gordon's and that's thinks the oldest thing that we have in the entire archive it's a letter that dates to 1777 wow. so if something was to happen to that then that's guys gone like obviously we digitize as much of the records as we can just for preservation purposes what's the letter about do you know the letter itself it's it's not the most exciting letter. So that he's writing to a um, well, it's a representative in Poland who is writing back to the company to tell them about the crop harvest that year right. and the quality of the crops. So I suppose in itself, it tells us that even in 1777, Gordons were looking further afield than just even London, the UK, but they were looking as far afield as Poland to get the best raw ingredients that they could for their gins which is quite cool. Fascinating. And that would that have been grain materials for making spirit, or are we talking about botanicals? No grains for mm. spirit. So are you telling me, is this a bombshell that Gordon's is 
rye based originally. London Dry, remembered as well. So this was before we were making yeah. any London Dries. <laughs> so, but yeah, I was when they were just making anything. Yeah. Like we've got Gordons, whiskies, credits, like any kind of anything you can put in a still. They were putting in a still. Yeah, this is the funny thing, isn't it? All these flavored gins. I was talking to somebody on the day about this. All these flavored gins that have come around now, um, and bitters as well, of course. It's nothing new, right? I mean, it's all been done before, and you've got a load of these bottles in the archives. I think Gordon's Orange, right? Gordon's Lemon was there as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. Damson, Ginger, um, all the different liqueurs and bitters. Like you say, there's so many. Like they honestly just distilled with anything and everything. And I actually really love that. It's like so playful. It's kind of like, right, well, what can we do? What what can we learn if we put this in a still what's going to happen yeah well it's the same mentality that a lot of the sort of craft distillers and and, and a growing um to a growing extent bigger distillers as well are, are doing now it's like well look what we you know we we're not we're small we're, we're wanting to innovate and try something new let's just throw something in and see what happens and it turns out a lot of brands big brands that are now big were doing that many many years ago yeah, and I think it means that when we are looking at doing that for our brands, um, it always starts with the recipe books. So we'll go back to Charles Tankery's recipe books or we'll go back to the recipe books that we've got for Gordon's because it's important that we do something that's authentic and that feels right for those brands as well. So it's not just about, oh, there's this like new trend for something savoury, like say, but actually for then, for, for how would we translate that to Tankery? What makes sense for us to do then? if we're wanting to do that for Tankery. And it was looking back at the archive. And that's when we came out with Lovage um, because we knew that Charles Tankery was distilling with Lovage. The thing the diary kind of, what I took from it was that he was he was obviously an innovator, an inventor. And it just so happens, I mean, clearly he was, he was pretty well devoted to making gin as well. But that, you know, he perhaps could have been in any industry and he would have, created or invented or, or or innovated into into a product that would have been useful and that's it's sort of the insight into the mind of an inventor of someone who's just throwing ideas around testing things out trying to create pro, trying to create solutions to problems oh yeah i mean the level of perseverance that you see throughout these recipe books is huge because it's not like you try something once and it doesn't work and then he leaves it. You know, he's always going back to see how he can improve, make it better, make it work this time. You know, he'll score things out and say, don't try this again. And yeah, you're right. I think his mind obviously worked in that way that no matter what he would have been doing or what he chose to dedicate his life to, I think that definitely would have been how he'd approach anything. Yeah, yeah. Um so I've heard there's plans to make the archive a virtual kind of tour of the archive. Is this underway? What's happening with that? So we're trying. Yeah, I think um, so the archive isn't open to the public. Um, it's by invitation only. So it's not that you can't come. It's just like we're not open like a visitor centre per se. And so it has always been something that we're asked Um so we're always looking at ways that we can open it up a little bit more. And I suppose with the 
the world and the way that things have gone in the last few months, um, everything's been done virtually. So we are looking to see how we can um, improve our virtual presence and, and access that way. So yeah, there's there's work underway. So we'll see what comes out at the other end. Um, but yeah, we're definitely really keen to open the lines of communication with people outside as much as we can. It's just doing that in a way that means that we can still do the day job yeah. without everything else. So, sure. Are there any yeah. of the materials currently sort of like in the public domain, digitised, available to view, or is it still sort of all entirely under lock and seal? Yeah, yeah it's probably still predominantly accessed through us. So um, any request would come to us and then we can see how best we can help. But it does, I mean, it's we're not closed in that way. So we're very much there for anyone who wants to do, you know, it'll be anything from like academic research to, you know, book research, etc., through to bars that want to have images on display, things like that. You know, we're very happy to provide those um, as and when we can. Um, it's just, yeah, finding the best way to, to reach out to people. But um we're getting there. We're getting better, definitely, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I would say so. Although I've never really struggled to get access to you guys in the past. I've had a long and happy relationship working with you. Um, <laughs> well, we're, very, we're very nice as well. So like, we always try our best to do what we can. So yeah, yeah I mean, it's not like, um, I think we're a lot more open than people expect. Mm. Um, it's just, I suppose, the difference is that you just can't physically turn up. It's But you, the access can be made any other way. Um, so how would I reach out to you if uh, I'm I'm wanting to get some some historical advertising prints or something like that put up on the wall in my bar? Did I go through my Diageo brand ambassador or sales rep? That's probably the easiest way to do it. Yes. So go through your Diageo contact and they can put them put you in touch with us because it will depend on what you want as to who you end up needing to speak to. Mm. So in the team because we all work on different things. So yeah, contact your Diageo rep first and then they can pass you our way and we do try and get back as quickly as possible <laughs> are, there, are there certain things in there there must be things that are just uh kind of off limits not people like classified you know like cia style like blacked out bits of uh text because there's trade oh, secret oh yeah there's a lot of that so there's definitely records that are closed this is what you want to see though that's the problem yeah but yeah there's definitely closed records um that we can't give anybody access to, but that goes for Diageo people as well. So yeah, it's not just external. You're on a need to know um, basis, and you don't need to know. I like that little bit of power that we get. You mentioned Nick, Nick Morgan earlier, um, who sort of set up the archive. Um, he's just published a book, The Long Walk, uh, all about the history of Johnny Walker. How much involvement? I, I imagine he spent quite a lot of time in the archives writing that. So how much involvement did you have in it and helping him? Or none at all, perhaps? Well, personally, not uh, me, none, because um, I don't work on Johnny Walker. So, but it was Christine that was helping him. Mm. And um, yeah, Nick was at the archive oh, for over a year, kind of once once a week for over a year using the records that we have. Um, I'm working with Christine to help un uncover the stories that, that he has done in his book. So yeah, she, he worked very closely with Christine. I mean, Clearly, he knew the records quite well anyway, because he did previously set the archive up. But um, yeah, he was given access to anything and everything that could help, um, which he's obviously used in the book. So um, as a personally, I was like, oh, I'd love to have the time to write something like that for, for my brands, because it's a real privilege. Joey, thanks so much for coming on. It's been wonderful 
catching up with you apart from anything else but some really amazing insight into what the archive does what you do um and i think some really cool insight into some of the brands and the distilleries and and the projects that are underway as well so thank you you're so welcome and thanks for having me it's always lovely catching up so um yeah i've really enjoyed it thanks thanks for listening to the diageo bar academy bar chat podcast follow and subscribe now for more episodes and to rate this podcast You can also dive into previous episodes featuring conversations between myself and industry experts covering a whole range of interesting topics. See you later, everyone. Bye.